Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. As 1999 turned into the year 2000, New Zealand's most celebrated band of the 70s and 80s welcomed in the new year with a reunion show in Auckland. It had been a decade and a half since Split Ends had split and ended, but it wasn't the first time the group had reformed on stage. What's the best part about getting this band back together every six years or so? Oh, the fact that it's only once, I suppose. Is it, is it actually playing? Is it rehearsing? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd say definitely the humour between us all, which stays intact as the years roll on, really. It's a big laugh. It's a good laugh, yeah. And it's good fun playing the songs. I think that uh, we play the songs better, and and I I think some of those early songs are absolutely brilliant. Ends is like being transported to another universe. And the highs are so high, every second of the whole experience is very worthwhile, I'd have to say. You find a kinship with people, a deep sort of kinship. There was a world within a world, and it had its own language and its own humour and colour, and really exciting for all of us. And then to be able to express that to the world was really a big part of what Spadins was always about. Really. A sigh of relief. Breathless with excitement, they turned each new leaf. As old they grew and greater their sorrows, so spellbound they waited with maybe tomorrow. Chances are, it's not that far to go. What it truly was, was a, a very close community of people who enjoyed some transformational periods of musical experience, you know, and, and some of those nobody ever got to hear. Some of the best moments were at rehearsal and occasionally we got it down on record and some of the gigs were absolutely inspirational incendiary affairs as well and those are the things which the band means to me. Tale is but a short one. It is but a brief tale told by an idiot. 
signifying nothing. All the way. I was born in Tiawamoto, 25th of June, 1952. Tim Finn. The Durning brothers, uh, Matt and uh, Peter, they were from Scotland and they had that Celtic melancholy in their voices. Beautiful sound, amazing. They used to sing that song, We are poor little lambs that have gone astray. And we'd all be just bawling, you know, almost. And uh, they do it in perfect two-part harmonies. And um, they really did teach Neil and I, just by osmosis, really, we just kind of absorbed this quality of harmony singing. And then we'd be dragged out to do it, and we'd just copy it and do it. Oh, I'm sad to say I'm on my way. I won't be back for many a day. Tim's younger brother, Neil Finn. My parents had a really good time, Mum and Dad, and they loved to sing, they loved to dance, and often as not, parties would end up with a sing-song around the piano. There was a guy called Colin O'Brien who played, who knew every song known to man and just used to have a glass of whiskey and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and play every song that he knew, and everyone would sing all night. So it was very much part of our upbringing, and yes, it did actually mean that the idea of engaging with people and singing uh, was less scary when it came down to it. There'd always be a total fear before you did it. If there was an item, if it was an item, you know. But once you did it, you felt great, and that was the first um, inkling of the seduction of live performance. In 1966, while Neil stayed at primary school in Te Awamutu, Tim headed for boarding school in Auckland. Here he met another pair of brothers who were just as keen on music. He is Jeff Chan's older brother, Mike. First met. Tim at Sacred Heart College when I went there at the end of Form 2 to be interviewed and Tim walked out of the principal's office as I walked in and uh, there was Chan, he was wearing I was very impressed straight away because most of us were wearing the sort of um, butcher stripe blazer which you know made us all look like dorks and we were also issued the standard dark blue suit and Chan had elected to wear that um, and he was the only one, as far as I know, who did wear that instead of the blazer. Yeah, we immediately clocked each other and the friendship slowly started to develop. I remember thinking he had these very long, deep blue eyes that seemed to go a couple of miles into the back of his head. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of eye. We had a great music teacher that played us things like Bob Dylan albums and Beatle albums. My brother Jeffrey had Revolver. We focused on that at school. And I think we just started wanting to sing some of them. Say we'll be together every day. I remember walking around the dormitory one night and hearing Massachusetts by the Bee Gees and standing still rooted to the spot really overcome by it so those two were the twin axes really of our musical life the Bee Gees and the Beatles and we used to learn a lot of their songs there's a light, certain kind of light, never shone on me. the first time Tim and I ever did anything at Sacred Heart College that had a crowd he and I jumped up on stage in class music class and sang two or three songs, the Bee Gees. And he stood at the back of the piano because he was so terrified. And I plucked away on the piano, and that, that was the first time I ever thought, oh, this is something I'm going to do a lot more of. Singing through a microphone was an amazing moment where I heard the voice go out, float out. It was one of those typically echoey sort of assembly halls, and that feeling of the voice floating out and filling the room and reactions of boys afterwards, you know, that was, that was the live epiphany, I suppose. It was very, very obvious to us that he was an extremely good singer. And so when we hit the stage and he sang, it was like, wow, that's amazing. I see your face again. I love my peace of mind. You don't have to be so blind, so blind, so, so blind. My brother and I, Jeff, 
in our home in Otahuhu, we spent a huge amount of time listening to and playing music. We just became this little duo down in the playroom, we called it, where there was a piano and a guitar, and Jeffrey bought a drum and a cymbal. In fact, in my fifth form year, Jeffrey's fourth form year, we actually recorded an album. And that was Michael and I trying to multi-track. We had a couple of reel-to-reels, and so we'd sort of bounce it through the ether. We'd record piano and box on one, and then while that was playing back, we'd record guitar and box on the other. So the recording quality is pretty horrible. But they were all our own songs. We took the tape to Stepping Studios and cut the shellac record. And so we then had an album release one record by Ashley Shrine. In 1968, my Uncle John had heard about this record that we made and thought, oh, well, you know, that's a good little hobby for the boys, and good on him. He gave Jeff and I one hour recording at Stepping Studios, which cost him $10. So we took this gift voucher, I guess you'd call it, to school in 1969, and decided we'd go into Stebbings and spend an hour and record three songs. I'd written some music and Tim had put words to it, to a song called Near Hosts. Michelle floating through a sun I was always in awe of Michael and Tim, and it was really great being in this room that you knew the Lady Dars had been in and Larry's Rebels and all that sort of stuff. We took photographs and took photographs of the people taking the photographs, and always wanting playback, but most of the time we weren't allowed it. Oh, it's just wonderful. Take It Green had a great line in it, uh, nothing to see but the flies in the heat of a dream. That was Chun, who now professes he can't write songs, but I, I think he had a pretty good way with phrases, although he was a thief as well, so possibly he got that from somewhere. <laughs> in the heat of afternoon I feel rest Beneath the morning up with a reel-to-reel tape of those songs and uh, we were really proud of it. Tim's voice shone through the whole thing. There were two or three sessions like that and it was like a magical thing for us to get one day or a few hours in a studio. You know, we were writing songs and doing it then but didn't really realise it. Like it, was, it wasn't until I was probably 19 or 20 that I actually made that leap of faith and thought, well I can write songs or I'm a songwriter and this is what I want to do with my life. At that, at that age, we just thought of it as a delicious kind of thing that you did secretly. We forgot to take my guitar off the roof of the car when we drove home, so we lost that. That was rather sad. 
Mike Chun and Tim Finn, then known by his first name Brian, went to Auckland University in 1971. Tim made a new home and discovered a new life at O'Rourke Hall. It was like boarding school life turned upside down because there were girls and there were drugs and it was, it was still a kind of hostile environment but with complete abandonment and, you know, a bunch of provincial boys and girls thrown together in the early 70s. There was a lot going on. There were a lot of great characters in that place. One of those characters was a brass player from Whanganui, Robert Gillies. I came to Auckland to go to the art school, the Elam Art School, intending to become a painter. At the art school, I had a hostel that I lived at, and my roommate was Phil Judd. G'day. The first big musical experience I had was uh, at Intermediate, seeing um, a school trip to Vienna Boys Choir, which totally blew me away. Hastings lad Philip Judd. My two older brothers were five, six years apart. They were everything that they were into, which was the Beatles and all that stuff in the mid-60s. I totally decided I'd hate it because they were into it, so I deprived myself substantially there. It wasn't until later at school, 17, 18, that I actually really went, yes, this is great stuff. I remember hearing Whole Lot of Love on uh, Peter Sinclair's show uh, as maybe I was 15, 16, and I remember that was the most out there thing I'd ever heard in my life. That really changed things, that song, in terms of being experimental for the time within a song. John Bonham is just a fantastic inspiration to me. I love his drumming. Phil and Robert's hostel room, number 129, hosted many a stray student, including the future percussionist and designer of the Split Ends look, Geoffrey Noel Crombie. Well, it took me really all through high school to figure out that I might go to art school. I didn't even know such a thing existed, in fact. I struggled through high school, Mana College, you know. And in the sixth form year, two people arrived at that school which changed my life, really. And one was Sam Hunt, who came in as a relieving English teacher. And the other was Robin White, who was the second art teacher at school. And basically said, you know, hasn't anyone told you about art school? <laughs> no, you've got to do your fine arts prelim, bloody bar. And then got into Elam, which was lucky. I recall meeting Tim and Mike in the music room of the hostel where I had a booking and they were in there. And I said, I think you're in my time. And they said, well, why don't you play with us? I think I recall that we played Hey Bulldog, which was a Beatles song which Tim used to thump out on the piano with gusto. You pretty quickly got to know everybody and... To hear Tim down in the music room playing with his mates, playing, thumping away on the piano, and I imposed myself upon him and um, went from there, really, and that was a coming together of souls there. The Elam Art School boys, Judd and Gillies and Crombie, they were the ones I was, I was drawn to, and, and they were the ones who kind of believed in themselves as artists, and I'd never met anybody like that. Well, I walk hall... I was envious of the guys at O'Rourke. They were free agents. Yeah, I was still living at home. <laughs> and, but I'd go into O'Rourke Hall all the time because, you know, the whole thing musically, uh, Bob Gillies quickly came to the fore as a saxophone flute player and Noel was just so eccentric that you just wanted to be around him and sort of maybe have some of it rub off a little. Well, we were all pretty oddball, you know, and the art school had a lot of sort of characters, if you like, and... Very flamboyant guys there, some of them. Um, started making clothes that year, somewhere along the line. Um, had no money, really, and was interested in clothes. But it was more like costume-making than clothes-making, probably. It was uh, more for effect than for anything. This new group of friends enjoyed playing music together, but for Mike, they weren't going anywhere quickly enough. So I used to scour the newspaper and the musicians wanted... And there was an ad. Bass player wanted for a three-piece rock band. I thought, wow. Work guaranteed, I think it might have said. So I rang the number. It said, oh, come to this warehouse in somewhere like Mount Roskill. And my name's Paul. So off I go. 
Walked in and, well, there was Waddy Wilkinson from Sacred Heart College. I took an interest in music probably with the advent of the Beatles, I think. Paul Wally Wilkinson. They really inspired me and, uh, you know, started playing on a tennis racket and from there went to guitar. Started to get interested in a bit more dynamic music like Hendrix and The Cream and all these other things, which obviously became my real love. You know, from that point on I was hooked, absolutely hooked. So I was suddenly thrust from being this kind of slightly arty-farty, wayward, wacky bunch at university to this hardcore, out-of-suburb, three-piece rock band playing Alice Cooper. Never heard of Alice Cooper. All of a sudden I'm screaming into a microphone, I'm 18, I just don't know what I want. And we would play the Mangaree Community Centre, we would play the Waiheke dancers, we would play the Howick Hall... There was a little nightclub in Great North Road we play at. We suffered really because none of us could sing. Three pieces kind of limited, but it was active. You know, I got to go to Waiheke, an overseas trip. Moses played at the Students' Arts Festival in 1972. Mike also performed there with Rob, Noel and other friends in Tim and Phil's new but short-lived combo. For this one-off performance, inspired by the strange time signatures and theatricality of Jethro Tull and other progressive rock bands of the era, they called themselves Melodrone. That was where Noel spent the entire time on stage, just standing there. Ray Wynn Turner sat on stage and just knitted for the duration of our performance. We only learnt one piece of music. Went for 15 minutes, one of those concept pieces. I remember the music was good, but the lyrics were pretty disgusting. (laughs) Tim, something about the sea and um, how beautiful it is, I think, was the gist of it. That was Phil and Tim's first putting individual pieces together to come up with this long piece of music in the progressive rock era. Yeah, Tim and I realised this is something to focus on in a sort of serious, flippant but serious way. We started writing in Patterson Ave, which I always love visiting because it's so middle class and so kind of conservative and quiet and it's the last place on earth in some ways that you would expect Spadins to have started in. But there we were in Mission Bay, you know, and surrounded by elderly people and uh, Dad had bought an apartment there Phil came in and that's where we wrote For You and then the second one was Split Ends. Name Split Ends. How did it come up? The name's Flittings. Mm. Well, the name came along well before the group. For some reason, uh, I jotted it down in an old book that I had. I'm, I'm not really sure why I jotted it down, but there it was. And one day, Philip stumbled across this book, saw the name and said, Hello, that's a good name for a group. Let's form a group. Call it Splittings. I have a vague memory of some of us having long hair and sitting around like a bunch of girls um, pulling the Splittings out and joking about it. It started out E-N-D is... Uh, we changed it to the NZ because I think it's almost easier to remember. Graphically, it sort of sticks in your mind with a Z at the end. The duo of Phil and Tim soon became a trio with the addition of a young violinist from Wellington, Miles Golding. A fellow called Derek Sanders, a wacky guy. He was about six foot six tall and used to bomb round Auckland on this tiny bike. He said, oh, I know these two guys, they're really, you know, full of energy, full of, uh, you know, they're looking for a violinist. Mate, you should meet them and just see how you get on. We met up with him and he was from the opposite end of the spectrum musically and um, he was intrigued by what we were doing and we were intrigued by what he was doing because he was a great player. He was playing with orchestras and stuff even as a young fella. Yeah, the sound of the violin, it just had an immediate effect on us and, you know, we didn't want to be a quasi-classical group at all, but... You know, violin's a folk instrument as well as a classical one. Mike Chun. I do remember Tim ringing me saying, oh, we'd like to use your bedroom to rehearse in. 
I don't know why I didn't think, what, what's wrong with your bedroom? But no, I was happy to have them in my bedroom. And they played in the bedroom. Graham Gash was there, turned to me. They are very good, he said. And I said, yes, they are very good. So I walked over to Tim, who was sitting at the piano, and said, would you like me to play bass? And he said, well, actually, that's why we're here. Writing letters to my friends, telling them all about Spidells. To complete the acoustic lineup. Miles brought in friend Mike Howard on flute. They were now desperate to perform in front of the public. On the 10th of December 1972, Split Ends hit the stage for the first time. Jeffrey got us the first show. He had been playing there at Wynyard Cafe. He'd been playing with his band Rosewood. And I think he just rang the guy who ran it and said, listen, my brother's also got a sort of folky kind of band. <laughs> Can they come along and do... They only know three songs, so they won't take long. Oh, yes, all right then. So we all piled into my father's Morris 1800, rolled in, very excited, and did our three songs. And we felt like a million dollars. The crowd all sat there staring at us. Tim Finn. It seemed to go pretty well. There, wasn't, there weren't many people there. And then we screamed off down the road to the Levi's Saloon and, and played there. And that was, you know, where Barry Coburn was, was running that place. And he loved us straight away and wanted to help. They were definitely different. Entrepreneur Barry Coburn. And uh, Phil Judd had black and white checkerboard painted boots on and a mandolin that matched. It was just fantastic. He had painted them himself. And they played three or four songs and it was all over for me I was just like astonished and I was seated about you know, six feet from them. And Barry Coburn said are you managed? Have you got a record deal? No. Do you want to make a record? Yep. Do you want a manager? Yep. And uh, I became the manager after their first show. You know, it felt like a fateful night. At least somebody believed in us straight away like that. It was pretty wonderful. Phil Judd. It doesn't happen like that apart from in fairy books really for most bands. You know your first gig and somebody with management skills is interested. So we were very lucky. I, I doubt if we would have cut, I don't think I would have cut it, just, you know, like traipsing around for a couple of years trying to get some interest. Um, so that really helped, I think. In January of 1973, my then partner, Robert Raymond, and I staged the Great Narawahia Music Festival, which was the first big rock festival, I guess, in New Zealand. We had uh, Black Sabbath as the starring attraction, and split ends got to open. Phil and Miles remember well the experience of playing in front of 18,000 Black Sabbath fans. Uh, a lot of excitement before the show and a lot of depression after it because of uh, the reaction we got, really. Just to be cut short in our prime and just to get... It was a, just a total bummer. I remember getting on this stage here and just not feeling things were going right. We were sort of playing our socks off and were unceremoniously asked to leave, I think. We were pretty much booed off stage, um, being a lightweight, puny-sounding acoustic affair that nobody had heard of or wanted to hear. And they replaced us with the Maori concert party. So that was our finest hour. Phil, in particular, was shaken by this experience, but Barry Coburn remained confident in the band's future. In February 1973, Split Ends recorded their first single at Stepping Studios. The B-side was the self-titled Split Ends, and the A-side, For You. We're outside the times, seen the break of day. My parents beat me cause I left. Or something like that For nights on end You've been my friend I turned the lights on just for you But for you, for you Just for you Blue boys on the stage Yes, he is quite the rage His parents loved his blue eyes he knows where it's at People think he's queer But to be quite fair You know he does it just for you 
taking a copy home and put it on and Tim put the headphones on and I remember listening to his breathing because that's all I could hear and his breathing got ready <sighs> he was he was overcome Tim however remembers it differently we didn't have a record producer we were out there playing with headphones on and then trying to come into the room and check it and everything was always a disappointment it never sounded any good it never sounded as good as we thought it did in our heads you know in fact, we used to play songs back at half speed and much prefer that because it had a bit of bottom end in it. I remember once hearing For You at a party, Lindsay Marks was listening to it, had his head right up by the speakers, and it was loud and it was very distorted through a terrible stereo and it sounded great. That's the best I ever heard it. <laughs> in the early Spillings days when Phil Judd would come up with a new song was just out of this world in terms of almost a euphoric thing. He'd only just learnt the guitar, so I don't know where his... and didn't have knowledge. It was like he would tune the guitar to strange tunings and just stick his fingers on strings that sounded good. They're very beautifully structured, highly accomplished musical pieces. A typical example would be Time for a Change, which he wrote when he was like 19 or 20. You know, you act as though you were a blind man who's crying, crying about all the virgins that are dying. You're the bitch who dreams, you know. Seems you need more sleep than like a parrot in a flaming tree. I know it's pretty hard to see, and I'm beginning to wonder if it's time for a change. bizarre some of the chord sequences I found you know as a, as a classically trained musician well you know Phil's 
playing and his musical imagination just uh, broke all the rules. I found that a bit hard to take. I think Miles was the first person to teach Tim and me about it's all very well having you know your bits and pieces and your parts but the skill of making a piece of music flow and move and go somewhere was Miles's great contribution for the little time that he was with the unit. After a successful tour of New Zealand campuses, Miles Golding left Split Ends to further his musical studies in London. It was very um, traumatic. I felt really torn because, you know, I know they appreciated what I was doing and I was getting a lot out of their passion, but I did feel, like, inadequate. I thought, I'm not the violinist I want to be, technically, so I had to make that awful decision. I remember Phil walking across a, a field and uh, put his arm around me as we walked and just said, you know, he was devastated. Yeah, well, I thought that was the end, actually. I thought I th- Miles was such, a, to me, a linchpin that um, that I was pretty shattered with that. In fact, I think I might have left in one of my pathetic little tanties <laughs> for a week or something. Uh, you know, we did a lot of that in those days, you know, because I thought, oh, it's all over without Miles. How the hell are we going to move on? Tim and Phil walked out, out of the house because they had said, right, well, that's the end of it. You know, we gave it a shot. It's all finished. Started walking down Parnell Road. I ran out and I said, listen. And I said, why don't we just go electric? Let's get Wally Wilkinson in on guitar. And Jeffrey, let's get him back on drums. With a new electric lineup, Split Ends played so loudly in rehearsals that flutist Mike Howard was deliberately drowned out of the band. By the time of the John Mayle support tour of Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, the group was comprised of Tim Finn on vocals and piano, Phil Judd on vocals and guitar, Mike Chan on bass and Jeff Chan on drums. Plus, Wally Wilkinson playing lead guitar in his biggest venues to that date. I was petrified, absolutely petrified, because to actually stand up on a big town hall and play where there's a real sparsity of sound around you, you're very lucky if you can hear much else, was quite petrifying. Audiences applauded and the reviews were encouraging. Split ends were on a high, but the first single's failure to get radio airplay soon brought the band back down to earth. They needed more exposure, and in 1973, New Zealand's one and only television network got you plenty of that. In May, Split Ends went back to the Stebbing Studios. With the string quartet and friend Bob Gillies on sax, they recorded the song 129 to be performed in the hits for the talent show New Faces. We kind of knew it was a bit of a corny old competition thing, but it was the only way to get on TV, and it was... We had to start, we had to put our toes in, you know, and get involved in the world of show business to some extent. Hiding in the wings forever We'll take the stairs, it's now or never And the whole thing reeks of cheap striptease The matinee I loved recording that song. We did all the beatly kind of things we'd always dreamed of doing. Playing Romeo, you make your debut. Yes, you do. Rose red cheeks, but your face is all glue. It's not all bouquets and white crayon. They're going to laugh when you look down. I'm going to ask you if you want to be a chorus for heart. You can mind the tragedy. I thought 129 was a really uh, deserving song and it was no surprise to me that we did so well. Getting first or second in the hit, whatever we got, which got us through to the finals, we thought, right, here's our big chance. And Tim and Finn went off and wrote 
Sweet talking spoon song. How's your day been, my love? How's your day been? A today? How's your day been, darling? I hope you've been good. Well, I've been away. I mean, I think we thought we were bound to win. You know, we thought we were bound for glory. So, but it was in a very naive sort of way. It was the wrong song in a way because it was about poster girl on the wall, which is exactly what the band that did win had sung about in their head. New Faces judge Phil Warren was unimpressed and said the band was too clever. We took it all very personally and very seriously, of course, and um, we had our knives out for Phil Warren for about 20 years afterwards, I think. Now that I remember back, that the band that beat us were good, but at the time, Tim and I were just so pig-headedly like, we're better than them, <laughs> what's going on here? Uh, very arrogant. Split Ends was beaten in the final by Bulldogs all-star Good Time Band. But there was at least one TV viewer that night who thought Split Ends was better, and even good enough to join. Tony Edward Rayner was then the keyboard player in Alistair Riddell's Auckland band, Orb. We were doing like Yes covers and Genesis and that sort of thing, um, and playing our own original material as well, but it was all kind of prog rock, really. <laughs> There was something about the Split Ends approach to music which I just loved, so I sort of had to be part of it. And he turned up to a practice... Jeff Chun. And it's not, should he join the band, it's how couldn't he join the band? You only had to hear the first song. That, you know, blew us away the first time he played for us on No Bother To Me. He just did it instinctively played that run that's still there on the, on the recorded version of that song. February 1974, Split Ends now ends with a Z, and Robert Gillies is joined playing trumpet and saxophone, and they return to Stebbing Studios to record four more songs for a proposed television special. There's this big grand piano, I'd never played a grand piano before, just practicing my parts before the session and Mrs Stebbing came in and told me off for playing the piano, in case it went out of tune before the session, <laughs> but that was hilarious. Well I didn't then, of course I stopped. I stopped playing straight away, you know, because she was like, a, like my mum, you know. Don't play that piano, dear. It'll go out of tune. But I still think of you when I'm alone. Lovey Dubby really epitomises everything that Split Ends was really. Very quirky little song. It goes through all sorts of time changes and key changes.
years, lovey-dovey, with Tim's beautiful harmonies. I was really proud of those sessions. Loved Tim's singing. Thanks very much. Before we start this next song, I'd just like to mention a certain somebody who's with us tonight is not on stage, but is still very much a part of the show. His name is Philip Judd, and it's his music which is our privilege and our joy to be playing. Phil Judd had left the Split Ends live lineup early in 1974. Tim Finn. He decided he didn't want to perform, so he, just, he would be writing behind the scenes for the band, but not part of the performances. Because I hated playing live. Uh, you know, I'm one of those people that would sometimes throw up and just get so stressed. In May, Split Ends headlined the first Radio Hauraki-sponsored Buckerhead show at His Majesty's Theatre. With Noel Crombie back on the scene, they went to town with theatrics and sound effects. The show, in front of a full theatre, was a triumph. <laughs> Jeff Chun. The first Buckethead, of course, was magic, absolutely magic. We dressed up like no one else had ever dressed up. And Tim had this paper mache mask with the microphone stuck through the mouth. You know, it looked like another person singing the song. He said, I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine. Stuck the mask on his face. I thought that was so cool. We had Noel Crombie up in the box at the His Majesty's Theatre, dressed like uh, Livingston in Africa with a pair of binoculars, gazing out before the curtain went up, just gazing out, looking at the crowd. So all the concepts came to the fore, and I always loved the idea of sound effects, so I was the sound effects man. I was the one who had the chanting monks, the smashing glass, the sped-up children going, Very eccentric presentation, and completely off the wall. I Sometimes I would be convinced that we would be busted, sheerly on the grounds of you know, haven't gone too far. Yeah, those shows were amazing, really amazing. I can still remember what it felt like standing in the spotlight of those shows, looking out into the darkness in a proper theatre where you, you can't see the audience. It's just a magical black space to play out into. It's a story of my life. The show was huge. That was the moment Phil thought, no, I'm back, you know, this is too good. I remember a couple of occasions like that when I went to see the band and it's sort of, it's a revelation that you... You're looking at it from an audience POV, and um, I thought, this is good, I'm not letting this go. That's Split Ends. Would you like to hear more? More of Split Ends. I think we can get them back. Phil came back to the band. Jeffrey, my brother, didn't want to know about it. You can use too much salt in the soup. I suppose I was a bit of salt too, so one of us had to go. And so the big shaker won. Bob Gillies took off. I think he felt that with Phil back in the band it wasn't going to work out. Wally also had reservations about Phil. If things weren't right or if he didn't feel comfortable, then he became unreliable. We were always worried, will he sing the next note or not? You know, And that was really what it came down to. Um, and when he did, it was just absolutely brilliant. But um, he had his moments, you know, that was a quirk. I remember it... Um, we played at the Peter Pan Cabaret. He was playing the mandolin and it was out of tune, so he put it on the floor and put his foot through it. <laughs> you think, OK, right, fair enough. With Jeff having departed the Split Ends drum stool, Eddie called up a former bandmate from the group Orb. Dunedin-bred Paul Emlyn Crowther was able to offer the ends a lot more than just his drumming skills. He had a handy knowledge of electronics and knew how to modify and even build synthesizers. After a brief audition, he was in the band. Paul Crowther. Two weeks later, we, I played a buckethead. We had two weeks to learn everything, and we played at the Mercury Theatre. We had lots of school kids along in their school uniforms, and we wore similar outfits, grey trousers, white shirt, tie. So we incorporated them into the show. Quite magical. Noel would come out as a headmaster and cane some of them. I think Peter Ehrlich might have got the cane. I hope it hurt, Pete. We had a choir from Epsom Girls Grammar. Noel Crombie. For this song, The Woman Who Loves You, we had a, 
a little tap dancing routine that Eddie's auntie used to do. That was that was okay when we were in town. Basically, you know, we could ring her up so she'd come and do it. And then we did a few gigs out of town, and I can remember sort of discussing, you know, what do we do about the tap dancing? You know, can anyone tap dance? <laughs> and that's I don't know, don't know where it came from, but that's it was like oh spoons. That's also when I moved into being on stage, really, as opposed to sort of drifting in and out. So I started playing a bit of percussion. Following on from the spoons was Noel's next contribution, the suits. The first time we wore them was in Hamilton at Founders Theatre. And I can remember sort of taking them down there. No one had seen them. This was like, you know, an hour before the gig. Here you go, guys. (laughs) And they all sort of, you know, hesitantly put them on and then all laughed at each other and then realised, oh, that's, you know, that's not so bad. <laughs> oh, we were so excited. I mean, that, that to me was like um, icing on the cake. It felt great. The concept behind them was just absolutely superb. The zoot suits, we called them. Just very plain and very asymmetric. Colours, brown, yellow, blue, red, orange. Mike's a relatively short person, made his trousers very, very wide-legged and, of course, with one leg longer than the other. <laughs> and Wally, our guitarist, was relatively tall and he stood right next to Mike and he had sort of stovepipe trousers, one leg longer than the other. Tim's jacket was all askew, nothing matched up. It was fantastic, though. It was just terrific. As soon as we had the costumes, it was, yes, you know, now we can let that little bit of wacky performance stuff out properly on stage. It helped some of the others more than maybe Tim and I, who sort of were naturally a bit sort of out there. And Noel, of course, was. It was just like putting on a a natural skin, you know, for the band. We became one at that point. It became this thing called Split Ends. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.